So Moshe continues his speech to the Jewish people, describing how everything is going to go great when they get into the land of Israel, because they are, if they, because they were, are going to follow in God's ways, everything is going to just go swimmingly. However, as we started learning yesterday, there is the danger that when God's blessings are revealed in our lives, we start to forget where it comes from. And particularly what we'll talk about today is the fact that the Jewish people are going to be so successful in driving out their enemies and the people um, will, will fall before them, they, that there's a danger of them thinking, of it bringing, uh, you know, creating some type of arrogance and distance from God. And as we mentioned yesterday, the irony that through God's blessing, it could have the effect of of creating a distance between us and God. And you see that, for example, with a child, that sometimes if you give the child, if you spoil the child out of your great love, you don't want to say no, that could create a distance between the child and the parent. And this could happen, Moshe's warning that this may happen between the Jewish people and God. So the verse says as follows, do not say in your heart, when God is going to repel your enemies from before you and say, it's because of my righteousness that God brought me to inherit this land. And it's the wickedness of these nations that God is driving them out in front from before me. As Rashi says, don't say to yourself that it's the combination of the two, my righteousness and the nation's evil that brings it about. Says verse 5, sets the record straight. It's not because of your righteousness or because of the honesty of your heart that you are coming to inherit this land. Rather, it is it's because of the wickedness of these people that God is driving them out from before you. And in order to fulfill the promise, the word that he that he promised to your forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Don't give yourself any credit for this. Verse 6, you should know. It's not your righteousness, for your righteousness that God is giving you this good land to inherit it. Why? Because in fact, you are a stiff-necked people. Seven, and despite that, you're getting you're getting the land. Remember and don't forget. And by the way, um, I'm sorry. Remember and don't forget. That you got you made God angry in the desert. The word ketzef means anger. From the day, the very day that you left Egypt, until coming to this place, you have been rebelling against the Lord. Verse 8, meaning at Sinai, after the giving of the Torah, the Jewish people were hanging around Sinai is Hashem, you angered God. God got angry at you to destroy you. Verse 9, so this is referring, of course, to um, 
Sorry, when I went up to the mountain, to take the stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant, God made a covenant with you, I stayed upon the mountain, now here Rashi will tell us, the word Vaeshiv, how does he translate it? I remained on the mountain. In Hebrew, Vaeshiv means I sat. Like we tell the kids in kindergarten, Shev, sit. Vaeshiv, Bahar. So it doesn't mean, Rashi tells, it doesn't mean that he sat on the mountain. Ain Yeshiva El Yeshiva means to remain, to stay. Arboim, you and Arboim, Laila, 40 days and 40 nights. Lechem loyachalti. Bread I did not eat. Umayim loyachalti. Water I did not drink. Layitin Hashem like God gave me. Verse 10 is Shnei Luchaisavon in the two stone tablets. Ksuvim Bets Balakim. Inscribed by the finger of God. And written on them was like, was all the words. Was everything that God spoke to you on the mountain from the fire on the day of the assembly. So Moshe is recounting what happened. That he goes up to, mount, to the mountain and gets these two tablets. Here we have an interesting Rashi. Rashi says, Luchot. The word Luchot is written defectively. Because, if you can see in the Hebrew, there should be a, a, a second Vav. There's only one Vav at the beginning. There should be another one at, between the last two letters. Why is it written effectively? To tell us, to indicate that both tablets were of equal size. Or identical. Now, um, What, there's actually a miracle here in the fact that they're they're identical because not only they're equal in size but they're also equal in weight. Now, why is that a miracle? Because we know that the letters were engraved, and one side, one of the tablets had more words than the other. The first um, tablet, with the first five commandments, has a lot more words than the second tablet. So the first tablet should be a lot lighter because there's less stone, more letters. And yet, miraculously, they were of equal weight. Verse 11, And it was after, at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, God gives me these two tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Verse 12, Descend quickly, from here. Why? Because your people have become corrupt. The people that you took out of the land of Egypt, they quickly deviated. So we got the word quickly twice in this verse. Moshe is told to quickly go down from the mountain because the people have quickly deviated from the path that I commanded them. And what have they done? Also, they made for themselves a molten image. This is the golden calf, of course. Verse 13, when God says to me, saying, I've seen this people, behold, they are stiff-necked. So this takes us back to the verse here, uh, verse 6, which says, when you're going into the, to the, to the land of Israel and all these people are being driven out before you, don't think it's because of your righteousness, because in fact you are stiff-necked. 
remember what happened at Sinai that you you um, worship the golden calf. So God and God told me at that time, behold, I see these people and they are stiff necked. How they stiff necked? I told them not to worship idols just 40 days ago, but they did it anyway. That's pretty stiff necked. Verse 14, Hedef me many vashmidain. Hedef, leave me alone, let go of me. Vashmidim and I will destroy them. Now, here again, we have, I think Rashi mentioned even earlier, Moshe was not holding on to God. He didn't speak yet. And already God is saying, leave me alone. So this is the proof that God is actually inviting him to grab hold of God, so to speak, and pray for his people. It's a hint. Head of me, many Vashmidim, let go of me, leave me alone, and I will destroy them. I.e., if you don't leave me alone, I won't destroy them. The Emches Shemam, I will erase their name from up under the heavens. And I will make you, Moshe, into a great nation, but rather numerous, even greater than them. Verse 15, so Moshe says, I turned and I went down from the mountain and the mountain was consumed, burning with fire. The two tablets of the covenant were upon my two hands. Verse 16, I saw that indeed you had sinned to the Lord your God. You made for yourselves a calf, a molten calf. You deviated quickly from the path that God had commanded you. So I grabbed the two luchot. I grasped the two luchot. I cast them from upon my two hands. And I broke them before your eyes. Verse 18. Then I fell down before the Lord, falling down in prayer. Like the first time, I bought him another 40 days and 40 nights. Again, I didn't eat bread and I didn't drink water. And I did all of this praying because of your, of your sins that you sinned, your sin that you sinned to do what is evil in the eyes of God to make him angry. So Rashi tells us, there's a long Rashi over here, that basically there are three periods of 40 days and 40 nights culminating with Yom Kippur. So it starts on Shavuot, 6th of Av. Moshe goes up um, at, at the great event of God's speaking to the two commandments and Moshe, the eight, the eight commandments. He's there for 40 days and 40 nights, comes down with the tablets on the 17th of Tammuz, sees the golden calf, breaks the tablets. That becomes a fast day, um, a fast day for us in the future when the temples are destroyed. Then he goes back up. After he sees what happened, he says, I better get back up the mountain and start talking to God. So for 40 days and 40 nights, he's speaking to God from the 17th of Tammuz until, what's 40 days later? The 29th of Av. So he maybe goes up on the 18th. Um, yes, he goes up on the 18th of Tammuz, which is the day after the breaking of the tablets. And he goes up for another 40 days from the 29th of Av, what's 40 days later? You got the whole month of Elul and the 10 days until, until Yom Kippur is Yom Kippur. It comes down in Yom Kippur with the second set of tablets. And that's the day of atonement. That's the day of forgiveness for all time. So Rashi tells us 
that on that day, on Yom Kippur, boy God forgave the Jewish people. Um, he pardoned the Jewish people. He found they found they found favor before God. Bisimcha with joy. So it wasn't just like a reluctant, all right, I forgive them. No, it was complete and wholehearted that God says to Moshe, Salakti, I've forgiven them, kid as you spoke. And that's why, says Rashi, that day of Yom Kippur was established as a day of, a, of forgiveness and atonement. Rashi adds that, that Moshe says, I stood upon the mountain like this, this, you know, this last 40 days, like the first 40 days. So there's a juxtaposition between the first 40 days and the last 40 days. Just like the first 40 days were with, div with, with divine, divine favor because the Jews had not yet sinned during the first 40 days. It was at the end of the 40 days that they said, hey, where's Moses? And they built the golden calf. So the first 40 days is in a state of divine favor because the Jews had not yet sinned. Similarly, this the last set, the third set of 40 days, were also brought with divine favor because God had chosen to forgive them. But we derive from that that in those middle 40 days, from the 17th of Tammuz until 29th of Av, there was a state of divine anger. Verse 19. Let's see how far we can get. Yeah, let's see if we can finish the, the parsha for today. Um Verse 19, I was frightened by the wrath that God had upon you to destroy you. God listened to me on that at that time as well. And God also got angry at, at Aharon very much to destroy him. And I also prayed for Aharon at that time. Why did God get angry at Aharon? Says Rashi, because he listened to you. You said, let's build a golden calf. And he said, okay, let's do it tomorrow. We know that spoken many times that he had good intentions still he's judged at a very high level this refers to his children destroying Ara means by that his children were going to die and, uh, and Moshe prays for Aharon and Rashi tells us that his prayer was effective that two of his sons were saved in other words the original decree on Aaron was that his four sons were going to die and because of Moshe's prayer two of them died and two of them Remain alive. Tashem, verse 21, the sin that you sinned with the, with the calf. I, I took this golden calf, I burned it in a fire, and I grinded it up to dust, and I cast the dust into the brook that descends from the mountain. Verse 22, and then at you provoked the Lord to anger. So now we got more sins coming. And the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea saying, go up and possess the land I've given you. You defied the word of the Lord your God and you did not believe him, nor did you obey him. So this is the sin of the Miraglim, the spies that Moshe is recounting. You've been rebelling against the Lord since the day I became acquainted with you. So I fell down before the Lord the 40 days and 40 nights that I had fallen down because the Lord had said to destroy you. This is interesting. He's going back now. Why is he, he's, re he's repeating them. Rashi comments on that. Verse 26, I prayed to God and I said, Hashem Elohim, please do not destroy your nation and your inheritance that you 
redeemed with your greatness with a with a strong arm from the land from the from the land of Egypt. Remember your servants. Who are your servants? Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Do not turn. This this line, by the way, verse twenty seven. This verse is a part of our penitential prayers. Do not turn to the stubbornness of this people and to its wickedness and to its sin. Why? Verse 28, lest the people of that land that you took them out of Egypt, that maybe they're going to say, God could not, did not have the power to bring them into the land that he spoke to them into the land of Canaan. And it's because of his hatred of them that he took them out to kill them in the Midbar. Now, he was strong enough to take them out of Egypt, but not strong enough to bring them into the land of Israel, and therefore he wipes them out in the desert. And Moshe concludes his prayer and says, They are your nation. They are your inheritance. That you took out your great strength. That is today's Aliyah, the prayer of Moshe and his dedication to the Jewish people to protect them from the divine attribute of judgment and to evoke from God and evoke this connection that God and the Jewish people have which goes beyond and reaches deep so that it evokes that part of themselves that goes beyond the sin, the connection that is beyond the sin and effects atonement for them. We'll open it up to questions and or comments. Hello. I got a question of you, sir. Rashi uh, suggested that uh, uh, all four of Aaron's children uh, could be punished by death because of the sin of Aaron. There is two questions for me about that. And first is, uh, according to pre the previous Rashi, Aaron, you know, he wasn't seen to try to, you know, actually to save Jewish people from sinning, you know, by prolonging this time and so on. And the second question is, you know, only two of his sons brought the foreign fire to the, the you know, to the holy of holies, you know. So, how about the other two guys? They didn't do it. Why would they be punished? You know, the uh, basic Eleazar and another his brother. You know, these are two excellent questions. The first question is, why would Aaron be punished to begin with? We know that he had good intentions. Second question is. How would the other two sons have died? They didn't commit any crime. In other words, the first two sons who did die, they committed some crime, so they died. But why would the two others, why was it the prayer of Moses? So for the first question, these are excellent questions. They're very deep questions. We're dealing with divine. Anytime we're talking about God, it gets complicated. And anytime we're talking about God's, um, how God runs the world, it gets even more complicated. And it gets with, with um, punishment and all that. So the first the answer to the first question I would say touches upon how God judges the righteous at a very, very high level. And so even though, yes, he had a good intentions, but at some level it was a sin. And, you know, this is like when you, uh, you know, you break the laws, you break the rules for a good intention, you still broke the rules. And for someone at the level of Aharon, at his level, um, it's considered a sin. So I think there's two ways to look at that. One is that he did the wrong thing. He should have stood up and said, um, no, we cannot, we cannot build a golden calf. That's forbidden. And if they kill him, they kill him. We know that he thought 
Abe's probably right that if the that if the, he would have said that they would have killed him, but that's what he should have done. That would have been the proper thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the other way to look at it is that he, he was willing to do the wrong thing for the sake of the people. But either way, there's something wrong over there, and that because he had such a high level, even though he has good intentions, he's still going to be punished uh, because of it. And that's a principle that God judges the righteous at a very, very, very strict level. Holds them to a very, very high standard. You know, like the white carpet has a, even a small mark. It's a, it's a blemish. And as far as the four children, that's an excellent question. Why would the two other sons who didn't commit any sin, why would they be killed? Why would they die? So this gets even more complicated in that, you know, the question basically is, did Nagav and Aviyu die because of their sin or because because of, of our own sin? So I think this gets into the divine computer that God, that God has a big uh, master plan, which is, you know, they, these two are supposed to die because of their, the sin of their father, Aharon. And um, they also have free choice. And so it, it all works out in the end. And so if, if God had decided that the other two sons would have, were to die, they would have died but it would have happened in a way that involved their free choice, but still excellent question. I mean, does that mean that somehow they would have committed some sin? Um, I don't know. I'm not sure, but I, I think that, that it does get into the, the divine computer and how everything works out in the end, that everything is just in the end um, and exactly how it works may be beyond us. Could I, could I get your comment on something it's, as I was listening to all of this and so many different factors, but it's, it, sound, it seemed like there's this constant struggle being pointed out between the Jewish people, between us and God, that, that there's this good or righteous inclination, want to do good, want to obey God's commands, and yet there's always this self-centered, this ego part, you know, even though the, our soul is, is pure, that this ego part seems to undermine this. It's always there. The struggle is always there. Would that be a way of looking at this? Absolutely. And uh, I mentioned in the past that the book of Deuteronomy is kind of the book of repentance. And I mentioned that we have a custom to read the entire book of Deuteronomy on the last night of the season of repentance, which is Hoshana Rabbah, towards the end of Sukkot. And yeah, this is what it's about, you know, recognizing our capacity, our proclivity towards losing the plot, as they say, and going off on, on our own path. And that the point of the book is not to beat us up about that, since we, don't, we didn't create us ourselves with that nature. This was, like, in fact, God's intention. We have this struggle. But to recognize that, first of all, we have this capacity, so we're going to watch out for it. And number two, even if we do fall down that path, the book of Deuteronomy also tells us about how we get back. And when we come back, it's even bigger and better. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough journey, right? It's not an easy one. Not just, oh, well, I see this now, I'm okay. <laughs> right, right. Bruce. Yes. I'm trying to source the verses for the morning Shema and the evening Shema. <clears throat> and I have sourced all three of the main paragraphs in the 
evening Shema as being from Deuteronomy by Eschanan and Ikev, and then Numbers Shalach. But in the AM Shema, I know the first paragraph is from Deuteronomy by Eschanan, chapter 6, verse 4. But what about the verses that say, you were the same before the world was created, that paragraph, and the next paragraph, you are the Lord God in heaven and on earth and in the most lofty heaven of heavens. Where are those sourced in it, my humash? So you're talking about um, in the morning prayers, in the pre-morning prayers, um, you know, when, typically in the synagogue, we start with Hodu, but there are the pre-morning prayers, which are very beautiful, by the way. We have the Akedah, which we're, we're supposed to read every day. And those prayers that you said, and includes the, the one paragraph of the Shema, the first paragraph. What you were referencing, referencing is, uh, those are not from the Chumash. They're not from the five books of Moses. They are not even from scripture. They do, the second paragraph that you mentioned does cite scripture, especially Zephania towards the end. But the first um, paragraph I don't believe has any verse in it from the Torah. Those are later writings. Um, I'm not sure exactly when they are written. I'm not sure if they're from the Talmudic period or later. But yes, you wouldn't find them in the, in the five books of Moses. And are those th uh, two paragraphs considered part of the morning Shema? No, no, those are... Um, those are not, um, they do lead into it. They do lead into it. I'm sorry, the, the, I think the ones you mentioned come after, both of them come after it. Yes. Yeah, th those are, yeah, they, they, they follow from it. They follow from it. But they're, you know, later editions, they're not at the same level of reading the Shema as a biblical requirement, and it's, it's only biblical verses. And everything before and after is later the sages added the blessings, for example, but the blessings are at least the rabbinic requirement to say the blessings before and after. But what you were referencing is, um, I would say it's almost not the level of custom, right? If you don't say them, you haven't missed out on fulfilling the mitzvah in, in its completion. You know, the, the way to fulfill the mitzvah in its completion is to read the three paragraphs and say the blessings before and after, which we have later in the davening. You know, a blessing means it starts with the words, Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, etc. But those paragraphs that, that you reference are not blessings. Um, they, are, they are prayers, meditations that help, you know, internalize the ideas. You know, like beautiful what you, what you quoted, that you are, that whether, you know, before God created the world and after creating the world, God remains the same in a way, is unaffected. Uh, his infinity is in effect unaffected by the creation. God is, you know, you are the only force in heaven and upon earth. There is not no other force. So it's, it's elaborating on this concept. It's almost like a commentary on uh, the Lord of God. The Lord is one. And not just that there's only one God, but there's only one force. There's no other force in the, in the, in the, in, in, in existence. So those are beautiful paragraphs, but if I understand you right in the morning, it's really the, first paragraph of the Shema, and then in the evening, it's three paragraphs. Um, no, 
it's morning and evening are the same. Both is we we say all three paragraphs. What you're seeing at the beginning of the you know the pre-prayer prayers, that is not the fulfillment of the mitzvah of reading the Shema per se. We're going to fulfill the the mitzvah of, of reading the Shema later in the prayers when we have all three paragraphs in the morning prayer. I see. Okay, thank you so much. My I appreciate pleasure. that. My pleasure. There, there is an opinion, and we I mentioned this when we when we came to those verses. There are different opinions what is considered fulfillment of the of the mitzvah, and according to one opinion, just reading that one paragraph, you have already fulfilled the biblical command to read the Shema. However, according to other opinions, it's um, both. It's the first two paragraphs. And it was the sages that put the third paragraph together with that because it has the mitzvah of remembering Exodus from Egypt. And so they put that all together. So now the way the, the rabbi set it up, that's the way we, that's what we call reading of the Shema. But in fact, in fact, you're bringing up a good point, which is if a person for whatever reason in a very desperate situation didn't have time to say all three paragraphs and he just read that one paragraph, According to many opinions, he will have fulfilled the biblical obligation of reading the Shema. Don't you fulfill it if you say just the first two verses, Ethan? In yes, some opinion, yes, there are opinions that say that as well. Yeah, so there's a it's a three way argument. How much of it has to be read to fulfill? Thank you. My pleasure. All right, gentlemen. Well, thank you so much. It's great being here. A wonderful Aliyah today. And we'll look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Thank you, Rabbi. See you tomorrow. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you.